0: Hello, and welcome back to the Tame of the Shrew podcast. My name is Ryan LaFollette, and today we'll be doing the first installment of a new series in which we take a deep dive into literature produced with authors right here in Cincinnati. Today, I have the honor and pleasure of being joined by Dr. Mel Otten, who's one of the articles on the newly released Wilderness Medical Society Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Treatment of Heat Illness, now that summer is in full swing. So this is the 2019 update, and I am joined by Dr. Mellotten. Currently a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics, former captain in the US Navy, served in Vietnam, is the associate medical director of poison control, chief medical officer of DMAT, uh, or Kentucky One across the river, the member of the Tactical Combat Care Committee, uh, medical advisor to NASA, and most pertinent to our discussion today, past president and still member of the Wilderness Medicine Society. So Dr. Otten, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Oh,
1: you're welcome. Um, this is just one of the many uh, guidelines that the Wilderness Medical Society decided to publish back in 1989. Uh, and interestingly, the first editor of those was one of our former residents and faculty members, Ken Iserson. And uh, that uh, publication, which I have here in 1989, say a single word about heat illness in the uh, in the publication. Uh, under the uh, thing on fluid resuscitation, they talked about uh, using uh, fluids for people who maybe had uh, um, some heat uh, exposure in the wilderness. And that was in 1989. Well, in 1995, Bill Forgey took over uh, and published a little book on Wilderness Medical Society Practice Guidelines uh, and there was one page there on heat-related illness. In uh, in 2011, the Wilderness Medical Society uh, decided to publish some evidence-based uh, articles on wilderness medicine guidelines. Previously, the uh, the guidelines were basically expert opinions. So they asked a sub- couple of guys in Wilderness Medical Society, "You know anything about snake bite? You know anything about high altitude illness?" And they say, "Yeah." And they and they wrote down a couple paragraphs, and that was it. So, uh, they got four of us uh, who were interested in heat illness back in, in 2011, and uh, we published evidence-based um, scientific background on uh, heat illness, and uh, it was published in 2013, and then in 2017, they decided that we would do an update, and uh, this is the uh, latest update on, uh, on heat illness. And uh, heat illness is a is a very um, high morbidity and mortality, uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world. In 2003, there was a heat wave in Europe that killed 70,000 people. Uh, every year in the United States, 600 people die uh, from heat illness, maybe more. And with climate change, and uh, obviously uh, the 10 warmest uh, years on record were the past 10 years in the United States, so the... Uh, the temperature is increasing, the climate change is giving us uh, global warming, and so we expect to see more and more uh, heat illness. Uh, and what we did is we looked at PubMed, we went over all of the um, keywords uh, that we could look at for heat illness, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, uh, hyperthermia, all the other things, and got a couple thousand articles, and we sieved through them and found the ones that had the highest... Uh, relevance uh, to the, not just heat illness, but to the Wilderness Medical Society. There were a lot of articles on uh, on heat illness that were classic heat stroke, uh, usually seen in uh, elderly people uh, who are on lots of medications uh, during some of these heat waves. Uh, and then we used a, a consensus approach of the panel, uh, looking at all the evidence, and then we decided to um, use evidence levels based on the American College of Chess Physicians. So these would be like uh, 1A for the best uh, evidence and then uh, 1D for the worst or 2D for the worst uh, evidence. And then we looked at uh, several things. One we wanted to define heat illness so people knew exactly what we were talking about and there were different types of heat illnesses from heat cramps to heat edema and heat syncope those things are usually self-limiting and, and not much of a problem um, as far as morbidity, mortality. And then we looked at heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Uh, heat exhaustion uh, was um, someone exposed to high ambient temperature, usually who are exercising or both. Uh, and they may have a whole uh, uh, lot of different symptoms associated with that, including you know headache and fatigue and thirst. Uh, dizziness, muscle aches. And this heat exhaustion, if not uh, treated appropriately, may lead to heat stroke. Uh, Heat stroke would be, by definition, a core temperature above 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees centigrade and some central nervous system involvement. So people with seizures, coma, encephalopathy, and a high temperature were considered heat stroke. And then we use those definitions um, and to look at different ways that heat stroke and heat exhaustion could be treated. We looked at both uh, the ph- pathophysiology behind it, uh, and it turned out that uh, a lot of the studies done with heat stroke showed that it is very similar to sepsis in the way that people respond to it, uh, because this whole cascade of, of s- uh, cellular and systemic uh, responses to the, the high temperature. I hate to use the word cytokines, but uh, cytokines were indicted along with interleukins and uh, heat uh, proteins and things like that. that uh, is one of the things that um, they cause the morbidity mortality with heat stroke and untreat- untreated heat stroke um, is about 10 percent mortality associated with it and heat stroke with hypotension uh, is about 33 uh, percent mortality so it is is very dangerous and the the prognosis Unlike hypothermia, where the prognosis is related to your preexisting um, mortality or morbidity, like people with heart disease and lung disease and liver disease who get cold don't do as well as people who are absolutely normal, hyperthermia or heat stroke is related to both the duration and the temperature at which your body um, is, uh, is subject to.
0: I thought it was really interesting in this particular iteration, you both differentiate and find commonality in both environmental heat exposure and exertional heat stroke. Um, So do you, when you're seeing a patient, have any clinical designation that you're looking for or any treatment differentiation between someone that was purposefully exerting themselves or someone that was just, uh, like you said, kind of the elderly left outside or unable to compensate?
1: No, the actual treatment is going to be the same, which is to lower the body temperature as fast as possible. Uh, in the wilderness where this was originally designed for, uh, we would not have a lot of uh, equipment and supplies available, including IV fluids or uh, ice packs and things like that. So we would use whatever was available, because the, the longer you delay, uh, the lo- the uh, more morbidity mortality that you see. So the, the Treatment should begin immediately upon recognizing it. So, um, whether it's somebody with classic heat strokes or an elderly person who is found in their apartment with no air conditioning and uh, unconscious with an elevated temperature, those people should be treated exactly the same as people who are playing football. And or running around in the uh, uh, out in the outdoors on a marathon race or something like that, who again collapse uh, in a hot environment with it when an elevated temperature, they should be treated exactly the same, which is immediate cooling.
0: Perfect. So let's go into some of those mechanisms of cooling. Anything from kind of what we have in the emergency department. So we think EMS, maybe with cold packs, to some other passive measures like exposure, kind of uh, an evaporative. or a conductive cooling to a total body um, immersion? And where do you find that the most effective, most effective kind of initial treatment, treatment is?
1: Yeah, conductive uh, cooling uh, is, is the most efficient way of doing it. Uh, the heat transfer of water versus air is about 24 times greater. So if you can immerse someone in cold water, Uh, That is the fastest way to cool them, much faster than any other evaporative or uh, convective uh, means. So we always try to do that if possible. Uh, I just had a case uh, a couple weeks ago where somebody came in and um, I asked them if they had a a tub that they could use or uh, an ADA bath any of those things, to uh, put the person in ice water, and they said no. So I eventually used a body bag. Uh, and filled it full of ice and water, immersed a person in, in that who had a temperature of 106. The old uh, way of putting ice bags on people's hand, or on their uh, groin and their neck, uh, is worthless. Uh, there's been several studies showing that you want to put any ice bags on what's called glabrous skin, which is skin that doesn't have hair on it. And it also those areas also have a uh, counter-circulation uh, uh, that increases heat transfer. So those would be the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet and the face are actually the best places to put ice bags if you have to. If you have to put somebody uh, in a uh, ice bath, it's always good if you can at, at that point to uh, sedate them and or intubate them because people don't like to be in the ice bath. It, it, c- it can be fairly painful. Uh, The problem with shivering is not a problem at all. We used to say that this is called the Curie Effect uh, that was noted back in the 1800s when people were uh, in uh, cold water, they would start to shiver, but the actual temperature that increases even with that kind of shivering is less than uh, a tenth of a degree Fahrenheit. So it's not a problem. Uh, Shivering should not be uh, uh, your concern if you're going to put people in ice. It's okay for them to do that. Uh, cooling them to a temperature of uh, 102 is usually as far as we go you don't have to go beyond that although you could uh, bring on hypothermia in somebody if you left them in there to normal temperature so once their temperature gets to 102 you can remove them from that Uh, using evaporative cooling and convective cooling is the next thing to do if you can't immerse them in uh, an ice bath or you can even pack them in ice instead of putting the ice bags on their on their groin and on their neck uh, get a giant ice bag and put it on their chest and their legs and their you know their entire body. Uh, that would also uh, work uh, with conductive uh, cooling.
0: And then logistically, from a passive cooling, if you say have a really elderly patient that may not be amenable to uh, being immersed. Do you recommend kind of a cool cloth on top or just complete, completely naked with fans and sprays? Well,
1: evapative cooling depends on the water that leaves your skin. It has to evaporate. If you just pour water on someone, it won't work. Just like sweat that pours off you doesn't really cool you. It has to evaporate. That's why in a high humid, humid situation, uh, you don't cool very rapidly because there's not a good uh, differential between the humidity in the air and the humidity on, on your body. Uh, so spraying them with a sprayer and then fanning them uh, causes good evaporative cooling, uh, and also the fanning causes loss of uh, heat by, by convection. Uh, so you can do that with an elderly person, although I would still recommend, if you can, put them in an ice bath. I mean, sedate them, intubate them if you have to, uh, but that's going to be the, the best way to cool them off. And then monitoring your temperature is a real key. A rectal temperature is, a, is the best type of temperature to get. Once you're monitoring them in an ice bath, though, you have to be careful because their their body is immersed in the cold water and you may get a false reading on your rectal temperature. At that point, I usually use esophageal uh, temperature probes, which you can just put down next to the ET tube. and It'll give you a core temperature.
0: Great. And then as far as, especially in the exertional um, heat component, there are certainly unavoidable activities that you'll be doing outside. And this article gets to some of the ways that you can help avoid putting yourself in that scenario and preventing heat stroke from happening. Can you go through a few of those?
1: Yeah, probably the real key is uh, is hydration, um, not necessarily over-hydration, which can lead to dilutional hyponatremia, which can look just like uh, heat stroke. Uh, and you have to be aware of that. And we've seen many cases out of the Grand Canyon of people who've been evacuated there who've been just drinking free water uh, with no sodium and not eating anything, and they become uh, hyponatremic, and they'll seize, and they'll be in a hot environment, it may look like heat stroke, and they're treated that way, where in fact they should have been treated with hypertonic saline. Uh, so hydration is the real key, continuing to eat and take in some salt in your, either your food or additional salt added to, uh, to your food. Those are two ways to do it. Um, and uh, you know, being careful about where you're exercising, and acclimatizing. So if you're going to go out to, to the desert and do a, a marathon run, uh, you should acclimatize uh, before you get there. Acclimatization does several things. It makes you start sweating at a lower temperature, which is good because it cools you off. It increases the amount of sweat glands that you can recruit to help with evaporative cooling, and it actually decreases the concentration of sodium that's in your sweat. Uh, so you will lose less sodium and uh, probably uh, help you avoid dilutional hyponatremia. So acclimatization is a real key, and I do a lot of uh, desert hiking and desert uh, camping, and uh, I always try to make sure I acclimatize before I go out to the desert for a couple weeks of uh,
0: backpacking. That's great. So, again, prevention is key, hydration, uh, acclimatization if you can, and then once you're in that scenario, obviously removing yourself environmentally or if you have a patient from it, either evaporative cooling or total body immersion. Any other big takeaways that you took uh, from this review?
1: Well, I think probably one of the big things was that uh, a lot of the uh, heat illness that we see in the emergency room, we treat it with drugs. Uh, somebody comes in with a fever who's got a you know sore throat or pneumonia, we give them Tylenol or ibuprofen. If we think it's uh, uh, you know, malignant hyperthermia will give them dantrolene or will give them, uh, you know, a bunch of different drugs. None of those things will help. And in fact, they may be dangerous to use in people who have exertional heat, uh, heat stroke, or classical heat stroke. So avoid trying to treat it with, with drugs. And then IV fluids, uh, cool, cold IV fluids are, are better, but you should not spend time trying to put an IV in someone when it's more important to immerse them in ice water and cool them off. You cannot really lower somebody's temperature very quickly by intravenous fluids or even some of the things we use for uh, um, uh, post-cardiac arrest cooling. Those things are too slow to cool people off. We have to cool them off as fast uh, as possible uh, to prevent the uh, mortality associated with heat, heat stroke. Great.
0: Well, I really appreciate you uh, both making these guidelines and sitting down with us today uh, to discuss them. And I hope next time I'm exerting myself outside, you'll be on the rescue team taking care of me. Uh, But thanks for sitting down and join us next time on Tame the Shrew.